So we've been practicing here together now for what probably feels like quite some time. In some sense, not so long. In another sense, the very fullness of engagement with the practice we can find even just a, a day and a half is quite a period of time. Maybe not even that long. Maybe just a day we've been here, really. 24 hours. The lot can happen. We can notice, we can discover a considerable amount. Can I just check, is the volume okay? Yeah, good. So this practice of loving kindness, of, of orienting ourselves towards this very natural capacity, this very, we could say, innate capacity of our hearts that is nonetheless sometimes obscured or not easily accessible to us. This is something that really, as an orientation or as a practice, can be found in all spiritual traditions. It's not just something limited to the the teachings of the Buddha. And yet the Buddha, in his uh, remarkable wisdom and understanding, pointed out some ways of understanding and working with this territory that was and are incredibly helpful for us. And so I'd like to reflect this evening on what, we're, what we've been doing together, what we're engaging in, what we might have been encountering along the way. To turn towards the, the wish for happiness that we have in ourselves to turn towards the, the caring in our hearts that, that arises from and that we can see naturally extends towards others as well as ourselves. We start to encounter the territory of our heart and our, our life, in fact, very directly, very immediately. I mean, it seems like in a certain way an obvious thing, doesn't it? Like, oh yes, it would be... It would be wonderful, it would be lovely, it would be wholesome for the heart to be more free, more open, more able to extend a sense of kindness, of love, of friendliness to others and to ourselves. And yet, it's something which we might also at times have questions about or wonder, is this really a good idea? And a few people said, you know, pretty much, or expressed that, that kind of uncertainty in the groups. It's like, is it really a good idea to open my heart? What if it gets hurt? And it's, it's that simple, isn't it? We don't want to get hurt. We really don't like getting hurt. And yet, in life, we inevitably encounter experiences that are difficult, that are challenging, that are painful for us. And so it's important to just reflect on why we might wish to cultivate this capacity. Opening our heart doesn't prevent us from experiencing pain. In fact, there isn't any condition we can place in the world that will prevent us from experiencing pain. But what it does, it gives us a a way of working with and skillfully handling our not necessarily helpful responses to that experience of pain. Which, when we say pain, I'm equally talking about that, which is difficult, challenging, unwished for and unwanted in our lives. 
So the Buddha speaks of a number of benefits of the meditation, metta meditation that we're speaking of, this practice of cultivating loving kindness, that I just want to name. One of the one of the fundamental qualities that it supports is this this connecting, this connecting with others, connecting with ourselves, starting to perhaps transform the very hard or tight or kind of numb or cold sense of separateness that we can often experience, that we can often feel in life. Separateness in relationship to others or the world. Separateness at times in relationship to ourselves. And so painful it is to feel somehow disconnected or cut off from ourselves, let alone from others too. That coming into contact with this this territory of the heart begins to work on that separation. And it's one of the fundamental elements of transformation that it offers. But the, the Buddha spoke also of some other things, which I don't know that they're necessarily what everybody experiences on a weekend retreat, but just to hear them in terms of the possibilities, I think is something quite inspiring and lovely. And the, the Buddha said in regard to this practice that um, that someone who engages in this practice will will sleep easily and wake easily. That other beings will love and protect you. That your face will be radiant and your mind serene. That you will die unconfused. And for those to whom this may be relevant, you will be reborn in happy realms. Now, it may or may not feel relevant to you according to whether you have some sense of what that means in terms of other lives, but it might equally be relevant in the sense of what we mean by rebirth in the Dharma teachings is how we reappear in the next situation of our lives. That sense of being able to move from one circumstance to another and see how we arise. That there's something about orienting towards kindness that seems to support well-being in the heart and draws towards us in a kind of mysterious way fortunate or happy circumstances. That's not to say that difficult things don't happen if we practice loving-kindness meditation. In fact, what we also notice, and this is sometimes what seems to stand out a little bit more, is that by turning towards this territory, this possibility of kindness, of friendliness, of fearlessness, of warmth, that actually what we encounter are the very places we were hoping it might allow us to avoid. Those places where we experience fear or anger or disconnection, or frustration. And it's important to be really gentle with ourselves in this, and particularly to understand that this does not mean we're doing it wrong or it's not working. Much more, what it's actually showing us is that we're in contact with the, the territory that we need to be in contact with. And it can be a little bit shocking, however, sometimes. You know, if we're cultivating loving kindness, then we find ourselves feeling really angry with someone, even if they're our friend. Someone reported, you know, getting very, feeling a lot of anger. Uh, I was always uh, remembering when reflecting on this story of another friend who <coughs> she described doing loving kindness meditation for a for a little baby and just really wishing well, wishing well. And then suddenly the image appearing of headbutting the baby. She was it's kind of shocking to see in herself and equally to hear about it. We think, oh, but what it, what we see is that when we turn towards any quality 
all the opposing qualities or the qualities that may be layered over the quality of loving kindness, they start to show up. So maybe we feel disconnection or maybe we feel a sense of um, sort of numbness. Or maybe, as I said, more anger or for some more fear actually starts to show up. And allowing that to be held in the practice is really important. And not taking it as some sign that we're doing it wrong or that it's not working in some way. So this this practice is, as I, I think I mentioned earlier, the practice of loving kindness is based on understanding that what we give attention to shapes our world. This isn't how I said it when I spoke about it earlier. But this is one of the fundamental understandings of the Buddha, that how we pay attention shapes the world. That it's not something objective out there, nor is it something completely constructed or fabricated and subjective in here. But it arises in a relationship between what is to be experienced and how we engage with that experience. And that in, in understanding, as, as he did, and pointing out that the arising of love and kindness, as a, that sense of kindness, of openness, of friendliness, arises proximate to appreciation. That when we attend to that which we appreciate, there's naturally a sense of caring, of friendliness, of kindness that happens. And we can see that if we turn towards in ourselves or in someone else and remember those things which are wholesome, those things which are, are, are fruitful or that we feel are beneficial or of value, that when we do that, what we naturally feel is kindness towards. But when we focus on the things that aren't right or when the things that need to be improved or should be improved about ourselves or about other people, or about the world, then very easily we feel a sense of closing of the heart, or a sense of distancing, rejecting, or, or, or even a despair for the condition of the world, or the condition of our own lives. And it's not to say that we don't need to pay attention to those things, but that often we get out of balance, and the Buddha's teachings are all about finding balance, and seeing what emerges when we're in balance, with life. And so in this practice there's a there's a finding of balance by turning towards what we appreciate, what we care about, what we value in ourselves and in others. And this quality of appreciation that we're invited to engage with, to turn towards as a foundation for loving kindness practice and for the quality to, to deepen in our hearts. I find it really an interesting word because at least in English it has a number of meanings, and I don't know about other translations of it, but the, the first meaning of, for me of appreciation that strikes me is the sense of gratitude. That sense of when we appreciate something, oh, it's here. Yeah, it's like it's that which we're grateful for. And there's something in that about connecting with something. And another value for the word appreciation is, or to appreciate something, is, is value. When we appreciate something, we value it. We see its, its value or its significance, its importance. And appreciation, so that's to appreciate, or it also means to increase in value. When something appreciates, 
and we use it in that form. I think it's a verb. Is it? I'm not good with that stuff. But, um, the verb, up to appre- when something appreciates, that actually increases in value. And so we can also see that when we, when we give appreciation to something, it's not just that we recognize its value, we actually enhance its value by recognizing it. And what appreciation also means, or to appreciate also means, is to understand. So we talk about, oh, I appreciate what's going on here. It doesn't just mean I like it. Could do, but more when we use it that way, what we mean is, oh, I understand what's going on. And when we understand what's going on, we much more easily and naturally also recognize what's of value in it and see what's wholesome in something. There's a a lovely quote, I don't know where it comes from originally, but a, a student who was here on retreat for some months. Uh, quite a few years ago now, when she finished her retreat, she gave me a very beautifully calligraphied um, piece of paper with the statement on it that you may be familiar with that goes, there isn't anybody you couldn't love once you have heard their story. And that sense of what it means to understand someone's situation, to understand how they got to be in the place where they are, even if that might have resulted in some things that we really don't feel good about. That when we understand how it came to be that way, our heart naturally opens. And so part of this practice is about that journey of understanding what it is that goes on for us as human beings. Equally as this turning towards the capacity for loving kindness by attending to what is wholesome or appreciable or of value that we appreciate in someone else and in ourselves. And it's always interesting to me how, for most of us at least, it's so much easier to recognize and to name and to even be courageously bold about naming the things about ourselves that aren't so great, you know? Like, it would be a little bit tricky, I imagine, for most of us. I said, okay, I want everyone to write down five things about you that are really rubbish, that really need improving, that could do with fixing. You know, it would be a bit uncomfortable. Probably most of us could do it quite easily. And if we had to read them out, it wouldn't be that bad, I imagine, for many of us. But if I said, okay, I want you to write down five things about yourself that are absolutely wonderful, that would be hard, I imagine, for many of us. And then if I said, and I want you to read them out, no way, we're not going there. I imagine for most of us that's how we'd respond. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because of course it's important to be able to recognise the areas where we need development, where we can grow, where we have things to learn, because we all have them. But so important equally to honour what is developed, what has grown, what we have learned, and how we have already begun to unfold in so many ways that without which you would not be here. You wouldn't be here, or if you'd got here, you would not still be here. For sure. For sure. To really begin to let go of our tendency to always pick up and always focus on what needs fixing, what needs improving, what needs changing. 
Our newspapers are full of it. Our conversations are full of it. Our inner dialogues are often full of it. And so this turning to loving kindness is also a turning towards what we love and what we value. We're only so concerned at all about our life because we do care for it. And it makes absolute sense that we do. But we don't let ourselves feel that so easily. So I'd like to read you a piece from a a Hindu monk named Kirpil Vananji. He said, He said, break your heart no longer. Each time you judge yourself, you break your heart. You stop feeding on the love that is the wellspring of your vitality. But now the time has come, your time, to live, to celebrate, and to see the goodness that you are. There is no evil, no wrong, in you or in any other. There is only the thought of it. And the thought has no substance. You are dear, divine, and very, very pure. Let no one, no thing, no idea or ideal obstruct you. If one comes, even in the name of truth, forgive the thought for its unknowing. Do not fight it. Just let go and breathe into the goodness that you are. It's sometimes hard for us to trust that that might be true, to even consider that that might be true, let alone trust it. That what we are fundamentally, at the heart of it all, is something deeply precious and wholesome. This, this, this that we talk about as moving our lives, this wish for happiness, this wish for safety, this wish for the end of suffering, it's only here because we care. And that caring is the expression of this goodness of heart. All our reactivity is only there because we care. And that caring is the expression of the goodness of our heart. We wish for safety, but that's not always what we experience. We experience pain. We experience harm. We experience threat and sometimes actual violence. And we try to protect ourselves naturally, appropriately. We try to protect ourselves because we care about ourselves, our life. We try and protect others because we care about them. That very caring comes from the goodness of our hearts. And yet, in that caring, we often find the mechanisms that we've learned unconsciously to try and protect ourselves don't really work. The mechanisms of fear And the mechanisms of anger, the withdrawing and pulling away of fear, the pushing away or striking out of anger, they don't serve. They don't actually really take care of us. Though they might sometimes give a semblance of protection. And what they do is, of course, in that attempt to protect yourself, the heart is closed. The heart contracts. And that's so deeply painful. It's so Deeply, not what we want. And so we're asked to acknowledge that in this world in which we care, the reality is that all of us encounter at times that which we don't wish to encounter. 
that which we call suffering, that which we call the undesired or the hard to bear. And we need to acknowledge this truth. This is one of the things the Buddha spoke of again and again. We need to recognize that this is how it is. Not all the time, but some of the time. And at certain times in really difficult ways. And to begin to also trust that we can learn to open our hearts in the very midst of, in the very face of this life, even with all of that that is difficult. We can learn to love unconditionally, to live with a heart that is open and that is fearless, even in the midst of the the very real challenges that we face in our lives, in our communities and in this world. This natural caring that really from which all of our actions, all of our life tends to flow. Until we understand what's really going on, it's distorted by blindness into reactivity. This caring expresses itself as something that's not actually useful or skillful. But as we start to understand more clearly, as understanding develops, then the very nature of our heart is to become a radiant organ of kindness, of fearlessness, of courage, and of love. So, if we can't avoid the experience of pain, we need to actually look and see what's going on in all of this. And this again is something the Buddha spoke of again and again. And, you know, some of you I know will have heard and reflected on these teachings many times. Others of you perhaps hearing them the first time. And myself hearing them and having spoken of it many times, I still find it really powerful to just stop and contemplate what this means. Because the Buddha said, and he spoke of the fact that we are born and therefore we experience birth and aging and sickness and death. All of us, we go through this unavoidably. Having been born, there will be aging. There will be sickness. There will be death. And I used to think, he's got them in the wrong order. Sickness happens a long time before aging. I got sick when I was a kid. But actually, I think what he meant when he said aging there wasn't, sorry, when he said sickness there, it's not just the sickness of being ill and getting better. It's the kind of illnesses or loss of capacities and abilities and functionalities that as we get older we realize, oh, these ones aren't going to get better. These ones, it's going to be like this, and actually it's going to even get more difficult or challenging in that territory. In so many ways, this is how it is to have a body. We get about 20 years, if we're lucky, grace. Maybe 30 if we manage to not notice what happens in the years between 20 and 30. That happens too. But it's kind of hard not to notice sometime in that third decade, if not the fourth, sorry, in the fourth decade, if not the third, that actually this body is going in a certain direction. You know? And we don't like that, but it's how it is. And so there's this aging, sickness, and ultimately death. And it's not an easy thing for us to be in this world, but just for a while, and not forever. I'm not saying being here forever would be easy, but just contemplating the fact that we aren't here forever. And this then leads into the second level of what the Buddha spoke about in a way, where he spoke about suffering or that which is hard to bear as the experience of sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. 
It's like, oh, that doesn't sound like what I wanted to come to a meditation retreat to get hold, get some more of. You know, we don't usually list that on the those little blurbs advertising the courses. Come along, sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair is available here. You know, who'd come along? I wouldn't. But actually, there's something important about just saying, oh yeah, this happens in our lives. Difficult things happen. For our hearts, these tender, sensitive organs that we would really wish to protect from all of that. But we can't. We can't. And this is a sometimes even harder to get than the first one about, yeah, our bodies go through this. Yeah, I believe it. Okay, I can see it. Don't have to like it, but I can see it. But this about the feeling life, surely it's not supposed to be that way, is it? And yet, there's no way around it. And a, a simple way that I understand that, that I find helpful, is to see that, or to reflect on this. If there's something or someone that you love in this life, at some point you'll be parted from that person, or that thing, or situation. Through the passage of time, you, or they, or it, at some point will part. Through intention, through accident, or through the dissolution, ending, or death, of one or both of you. And in that ending and parting from that which we love or that person we love, it will be painful, it will be sorrowful, it will be unwished for, undesired and terrible. From the heart's point of view, to lose what we love is deeply painful. And you know, if we love something or someone, that will happen. Probably we know this because it's already happened for us in greater or lesser ways in our lives. And if you don't love someone or something in this life, That will be painful. That will be really desperately grievous to the heart. So there isn't any option. We love and it will hurt. We don't love and it will hurt. So the question is, which of those options make sense for our life? We could say. But the reality of that for me, or what's important in that reflection is saying, oh, it's not because you did it wrong that you experienced all these things. It's because this is part of life. It's not your fault that there is loss, that there is sorrow, that there is grief. It's not something you have to judge or blame yourself for or judge or blame others for or this world or God or the Buddha or anyone else you might wish to judge or blame for that. It's how it is. And learning to rest with the truth of that. Far from being kind of miserable and depressing, it's actually rather a relief for the heart. Oh, oh yeah, I kind of thought it was like that. I just didn't like the fact. And then we see, oh, yeah, that's how it is. And you don't have to like it. It'll go on whether you like it or not. But, ah, oh, if I can rest with that, then something else becomes possible because I'm no longer fighting with it. And I can give my energy to what might be a useful response to a life in which that happens. And in a life where there is birth and ageing and sickness and death, where there is sorrow and pain and grief and lamentation and despair, what makes sense? But to actually bring this remarkable capacity of tenderness, of kindness, of care, to hold and to, to touch and to ultimately transform that experience with the very power of the love. 
Because what is the real harm in life, given that these things are part of it? The real harm is the closing of our heart, the disconnecting from ourselves and from each other. And so we're asked again and again to open up. What we associate with pain and difficulty and sorrow and grief is the reaction that we habitually and unconsciously engage in whereby we withdraw from the experience and in doing so we actually disconnect from life and from ourselves. And it's that disconnect that's actually the deeper pain. Much more grievous than the, that which was initially painful. It's the disconnection that we need to address. And so the practice and the invitation to reconnect is beginning to attend to. It's orienting towards this capacity we have to, to actually shift that habit. And so the love, or that tenancy. And so the loving kindness practice is, is it's actually gathering and supporting and nourishing the resource of the heart to be able to stay with and stay open in the place or the presence of that which is challenging. And to actually be nourished by the presence of that which is lovely or beautiful, to really take that in. To really say, yes, it's not just okay, it's essential that I give attention to that which is beautiful, that which is lovely, delightful, uplifting to the heart, in another, in myself and in the world. Because there will be that which is not. And it's important for our well-being that we don't become lost in the imbalance of focus only to the difficult. So we give attention, as we have done, to that which we appreciate and value in others as in ourselves. And when that happens... That which is difficult or challenging to us starts to become a source of connection rather than disconnection. It starts to become a framework for feeling a communality, a sharedness of experience. Rather than that somehow we are different or distant from each other. In fact, we share so much. And, and the very challenge of being alive is part of that which we share. And, uh, Naomi Shiab Nye speaks to this in a poem entitled Kindness. She says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. 
only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So I ask to not be afraid of the territory. Perhaps the territory that scares us. But to see that this is also the places or the territory in which we open. In which we learn perhaps the most transformative lessons. The understanding that transforms the way we live is to see that the real danger is not the threat that appears to come from outside. Which isn't to say we don't need to protect ourselves appropriately in relationship to such dangers. But more importantly, protect ourselves inwardly. Expressed beautifully, I think, this understanding in a story I heard of a um, conversation between His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who... When he's in his um, residence in Dharamasala, he, he likes to, when he's able to meet the pilgrims, or in fact the um, refugees who've escaped from Tibet across the mountains, who there's been a, a steady stream of, of Tibetans uh, leaving the persecution of the Chinese government. And uh, on this occasion he was meeting with this elderly Tibetan monk who'd travelled through the winter um, Season in the mountains where incredible danger from um, cold and uh, and from the the border guards of the the Chinese regime who, if they would see someone trying to uh, cross would would shoot them and his holiness said, "Oh my dear, my dear fellow, I'm so glad you've made it. Tell me were you at any time in your journey were you in danger?" And the old monk looked at him, he said, only." when in my heart I started to hate the Chinese government. And it seems a remarkable wisdom to me there, remarkable, to understand that of course there were very real dangers he had to navigate, but that the real danger is when the heart starts to close, when we stop being able to see what's really going on. And yet we wonder, is it safe, is it wise, as a number of you asked, to open my heart when others are, it, seem, it seems aggressive or callous or uncaring, unthinking, pursuing their own needs or priorities, disregarding those of others, insensitive to the impact they have on me or others, it seems. Is it wise? We have to let ourselves feel the impact of the closing to know that this doesn't serve us. That we don't really in our hearts wish to live in that way. But it's not easy to do so. And so one of the areas that we need to reflect on is how it feels right or justified and needed, necessary even, to be angry, to close our heart, to reject and push away. It's part of a defensive mechanism which, again, in certain circumstances is appropriately protective but becomes a habit and a pattern that is inwardly destructive and painful to us. And so 
the place of reactivity of, of anger or even of hatred is that they're expressions of qualities that we need. And anger actually expresses a quality of vitality that's seeking to protect and take care of by making boundaries, by saying no or stop or do not do that harmful activity. And there's something appropriate in our capacity to express that with regard to the action. And the, 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 when we're not able to protect, sometimes what happens is that the movement or the experience of hatred, it's this attempt to annihilate that which is threatening or dangerous or harmful. I once read a quote, and it was so tragically true, that said, pretty much every thing that's been done in this world that we might regard as horrific or evil was done by people believing that they were doing it to get rid of that which is evil or horrific or wrong. And it's true. It's true. So there's this attempt to annihilate that which we see as harmful, dangerous or threatening. And yet what we're really needing to annihilate or deal with is this tendency to aggression, to anger, to harm as an attempt to protect ourselves or that which we care for. That protective urge is important but understanding what expresses it skillfully really depends on us understanding what's going on in the world in our hearts and in others. So I'd like to illustrate this, if I can, with a story that's kind of an image or a metaphor for what goes on, I think. And I'll just invite you to imagine the scenario as I describe it. So, imagine you're going for a walk in the woods, and as you're walking amongst the trees on a path and the sun is sort of filtering down, you see a puppy and having some appreciation for small furry creatures, you reach out to stroke the puppy. And as you go to stroke it, it bites your hand. And it really bites your hand. It hurts. It maybe draws blood. Imagine your response. It's like, my response is, you bad dog. I'm going to teach you a lesson. Maybe I want to actually really teach you a lesson. Maybe I want to strike it. That urge would come. You shouldn't do that. You need to learn. I'm going to, I'm going to teach you. Huh? And then, just as all that energy comes up to react, you see that the puppy's foot is caught in one of those spring-loaded traps with the jaws that they use to catch small creatures in the woods. And what happens in your heart then? It's immediately, you realise, this isn't some bad, horrible creature that's trying to hurt you. This is some desperate, terrified creature in pain, crying out for help. Not very skillfully. Because this isn't a good way to get help. Biting people doesn't necessarily endear them to you. Endear you to them, sorry. But you see what's going on. And in that moment, one would not wish to strike or hurt or even judge that creature. It would be gone. Because we see what's happening. It's suffering. And there might be the wish, and I imagine for many of us, we'd, of course we'd want to get our hand out of its mouth. We don't want to just, oh, it's in pain, I'll let it eat my hand. That wouldn't be skillful, but it's like maybe I want to try and actually rescue it from this trap. And maybe I want to have a word to ever put the trap in the woods. And that would be appropriate too, done skillfully and maybe firmly. 
But you can see how the relationship to the puppy which hurt you would shift completely in seeing it was in the trap. Does that make sense? Do you follow that? So imagine, having forgotten all about this experience that's happened some time ago, you're walking in the woods again. And this time it's autumn and the leaves have fallen. And you see a puppy. You like puppies, small furry creatures. I like them anyway. And you reach out to stroke it. It bites your hand again. Ah! And you look at the puppy and you see that it's standing up to its shoulders in leaves. You can't see its legs or its feet. What would it take for you to know that its foot was in a trap, even though you couldn't see the trap? What it would require is for you to know and to understand that it's not the nature of puppies to go around biting you or biting human beings, unless they're in pain or in fear, unless they're desperate, terrorised, traumatised, in some way or form, that they just wouldn't do that. It's not the nature of puppies to do that, unless they're in pain and fear. And so seeing that, how could we know that is so? Maybe some of them really are bad. But you know, I've looked at my own life and my own experience really carefully in this regard. And I imagine it can be useful, if one wishes or chooses to, to do so for oneself. Whenever I've done things that have hurt other people, and I have done that, and it's sad and there's remorse for that. But when I've done that, if I look carefully, I see that I was in pain. I was afraid or I was feeling needy or desperate to keep hold of something or get something I thought I needed or to get rid of something I couldn't stand or couldn't handle or so I thought. And that's how I've ended up causing harm to others or to myself. And in seeing that, there's a natural movement of forgiveness and understanding that doesn't mean I shouldn't then attend to those patterns of behavior and take care of them in myself or that I don't need to also address those behaviors I might see in the world or in others but that I do so from a very different place when I understand they come from suffering and the desperate attempt to escape it. And what actually we want to do is forgive ourselves and forgive others. This is a necessary part of the journey of opening our hearts to see that we all go through this journey, this learning. And that we can through the power of forgiveness, through the power of love and loving kindness, we can release our heart from the shadow of fear and of anger that is the way in which we hold on to the past and that the past, in fact, grips our heart but does not have to do so. We can transform this by understanding what's really happening here. There's a story that I read that speaks to this remarkably for me. It's a true story. And in the story, a, um, a woman went along to the trial of a teenage boy who had murdered her son in Los Angeles, I believe. And he'd murdered her son, she heard, having never met her son before, who was also in his early teenage years. Because this was what he'd been told he had to do to join the local gang. And living on the streets at the time as he was, with no family, he needed some community, some support, some protection, some safety. 
Or so he thought. And he thought he'd get that through joining the gang. And so he just randomly, having chosen this person, seen him, went up to him, killed this boy. And he was caught and prosecuted and found guilty and sentenced to a significant period in a juvenile um, institution. And at the end of the trial and the sentencing, the mother of the boy he'd killed looked at him, held him in her eyes for a moment, and I think quite fiercely, I'm imagining, but what she said was, I'm going to kill you, and left. And then, when the boy was in in prison and had no contact with anyone because he had no family he was in touch with, the gang members weren't going to visit him there, she wrote him a letter, just asking how he was. And then another letter. And after a few letters, this woman, the mother of his victim, wrote and asked, can I visit you? And he said, yeah. He responded, yes. And she visited. She got to hear over the period of some months and years his story, and how it came to be that he was living on the street where he, without family, without support, in this desperate condition. And they became friends. And at the end of his time, many years later, He was due to be released. He had nowhere to go. And she said to him, she said, you know, I have an empty room in my house. You could stay with me if you wished. And he said, okay, yeah, thank you. And he came to stay with her. And sometime after they'd been living together, she she came to him and she said, you know, do you remember what I said in the courtroom? And the boy says, yeah, I remember. And she said, I meant it. I did not want that in you which could kill my boy, my dear and precious son, having never met him. I did not want that in you which could do that to survive. That hatred, that disconnection, that desperate fear that could lead to that behaviour, I did not want that to live in this world. And you know, I think that I've done that. I'm really enjoying having you living here. And I'd like you to be my son. It's a remarkable story. I've told it many times. It still touches me. That she had this... She wasn't someone who'd done a lot of meditation or loving kindness practice. But she was obviously a woman of some real heart and understanding. That she saw not that there was something wrong with this person, but that there was something that needed to be transformed in them. And she set about doing that. And she did it. We have this capacity for great-heartedness, for seeing that those things which we might most reject, fear or condemn in others or in ourselves come from our own blindness, our fear, our pain. And that that pain... And that fear can be transformed. And this path of loving kindness practice is one of the vehicles that support that. And the willingness to let ourselves feel and be touched by those tender places equally supports that, to bring kindness to those places as we have been doing. I mentioned 
can't remember if it was this morning or in the evening as we began last night, the the conversation of, of the Buddha with Ananda in which he says that this practice, the whole of this practice is for the development of loving kindness. And what did he mean by that? What did he mean by that? It seems to me that this capacity for kindness and for love is the very balm that heals our experience of separateness, of separation, that dissolves the distance, that fills and bridges the distance that we create between what we call self and other, between what we call me and the world. And that in the bridging of this territory, there is a natural wholeness that has a holiness to it. Wholeness and healing and holiness are all of the same root in the language. That the healing of the the deep rift in our heart and that we conceive or believe ourselves separate from, apart from life. And that we, as a result of that, the natural movement of love in our hearts is constrained from what would otherwise be its, its, its natural radiance in all directions. This, this capacity of loving kindness, what it shows us is that love sees all things as not other than itself as not other than worthy of itself. So this connection, this seeing of the end of separation, or this responsivity, this is an expression of the deeper and deepest truth of life that shows itself as as an awakened benevolence, as a, a boundless caring that we could speak of as the awakened nature of the heart, described as bodhicitta in some traditions, the natural wish for well-being for all of life, to leave nothing out of the orbit of our care and our kindness, understanding that sometimes the expression of that kindness is the very protection from harm of ourselves, and that it's an expression of kindness to also protect by preventing the actions that cause harm in others, so far as we're able to have an influence in that way. That, of course, this is part of kindness too. It's not a passivity. It's not just a being nice at all. It's something much more powerful and profound than that. We naturally, in the depths of our heart, wish for the welfare of all of life because we are part of that. And this caring that's naturally the wellspring at the core of all that moves in our lives. When we see through the illusory nature of the apparent separation, when we see that it's really not like that, that we are profoundly, unstoppably and inherently connected in so many ways that are deeper than the apparent Differences that separate us. When we see that the boundaries we've believed in, that we've lived by, are false and not true. The the love in our hearts is naturally boundless. 
is naturally unbounded. And our life is unbound. Just that. Life becomes unbound in the same movement as love becomes boundless and unbounded. And in this the heart is free. And in this the world is reconciled. And in that freedom and reconciliation, still the movement of love continues to seek for the end of suffering, for the resolution of conflict, for the protection, safety and well-being of all that lives. And it's this that our practice is in the service of. It's this that our journey is in the spirit of. And so thank you for practicing as you have been doing here. Let's sit quietly together for a few moments to finish. So may we all, together here in our practice and in our lives, continue to deepen our connection to this kindness and caring that lies at the very centre of our hearts. May we find the courage to face that which is scary, difficult or threatening in our world and in ourselves. And we may we live more and more from a boundless loving kindness for each other, for ourselves and for all of life. For our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. For the welfare of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.